Well, we're concluding today our focus, intentional focus on prayer. Uh, 21 days ago, we had a little booklet. Perhaps you've been reading through a little devotional, uh, and that will be coming to a, a conclusion either today or sometime this week, depending on your reading schedule. And it's been an exciting thing. But I don't want the focus of prayer to finish today. I just I want us to really think about how we're going to become a praying church. And I gave this challenge earlier uh, in the uh, series. But there, one of three ways you can plug in as a praying uh, member of our church. One, I want you to uh, connect to saying, I'm going to pray throughout the week. I'm committing to pray throughout the week uh, for our leadership, for those on our prayer list, and even the spiritually lost. The second way you can plug into uh, becoming a praying church here is that you want to pray with people before the service. There'll be a, gr- a group of people in the parlor, uh, just maybe 20 minutes before the service or so, and uh, you can just join in with that, uh, praying for what takes place uh, during this, this time together. And then the third level of leadership commitment is that you would be willing to pray with people after the service. In the parlor, praying for the service is with a group. After the service, there are people who need prayer. There are people who want someone to pray over them. And our elders are available for that, but I want to extend that team to all those who'd be willing to sit one-on-one with someone who just needs some encouragement, some reminders of the greatness of God, even in the midst of their situation, and that you uh, could be a part of being on the front row of God's grace with that person. Tonight, I want to invite you to come back at 5 o'clock. We have a a special prayer time, a a service that we're going to be praying corporately. You'll be praying independently and privately. We may be praying in small groups. But I want us to pray about very specific things tonight. And perhaps you have something on your heart. You just need to come and and pray in a corporate gathering. Uh, So prepare for that at at 5 o'clock. And with that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, pick up the black Bible in the pew rack in front of you, and you'll find us on page 848. With our emphasis on prayer, and we focused on various areas of prayer, I thought about our prayer list. Uh, Having a, a consistent prayer list is a good and noble task. Especially the older you get, the more you forget. So you need to have a reminder of what you ought to pray for. And I I look over our prayer list here at the church. On our prayer list, there are uh, many items such as health issues. There are uh, relationship issues. There are financial issues that are heavy on people's heart. And we pray for those. And all of that is good. But in our lifetime, we know that our health will eventually fail. We know that uh, jobs will change and our financial uh, situations will, will be flexible and, and, and perhaps even um, be come, come to an end. Uh, we know that none of our possessions are going with us when we die. You've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. Now, I say that, and one time I said this years ago when someone sent me a picture of a U-Haul behind a hearse. But that's not typical. And so if we know that the temporal things that we spend so much time praying for 
health issues, relationship issues, uh, financial issues, might we spend a little more time on things that make an eternal difference? There is a prayer that makes an eternal difference and not just the temporary moment difference. It's the prayer for people to be saved and redeemed by the blood of Christ. If you looked at your own prayer list, how many people are on your list, not about health issues, relationship issues, and financial issues, but they're for salvation issues? Or perhaps they've wandered off in the faith and, and you're praying for them to come back. How much of that prayer list focuses on the eternal salvation of souls? But taking a quote from Daniel Henderson, who wrote the little uh, 21-day prayer book, he says uh, something to this effect. Do we pray more to keep sick Christians out of heaven or to keep lost people out of hell? That's a convicting statement. Who in your family or your friend, circle of friends, or, or your workplace or your neighborhood, would you celebrate to see repent of their sins and be baptized? How often do you pray for someone by name to receive the gospel? Perhaps today, even in your mind, uh, you can come up with a, an individual's name or a couple of people's name. And I want to keep that resonating in the front end uh, of, of your cranium. Because when we get to specific points in the message, I want to pray for those individuals. That just in your mind, in your own space, I want you to think about them and pray their name uh, to the Father. Well, first, when we begin to think about uh, this, uh, this, this desire to pray and therefore then pray for individuals who are lost, I first want to have the heart of Paul. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10 verse 1 says this, Brothers, my heart's uh, desire and prayer to God is for them, talking about his Jewish uh, relatives and his Jewish nation, for them that they may be saved. In another place in, in the passage, he says, I'd be willing to give up my own salvation if I knew they would be saved by that act. Could you imagine being willing to go to hell if other people would be saved in your place? That's the heart behind Paul's passion. Why was he willing to be put in prison? Why was he, he willing to be chained to, to guards? Why was he willing to be shipwrecked and, and beaten and, and, uh, and thrown out of cities? It wasn't for his own comfort. It was all that they would come to know the Lord. You look through the book of Acts, you see all that Paul went through in order just that, that whether they were the king or, or they were just a prisoner, he wanted them to know Jesus Christ who would change their life. Because his life had been changed. And I consider what, what I've seen around here, why is it that we do an Easter egg hunt? A vacation Bible school, a July 4th celebration on our front lawn, or a fall festival? Why do we do these things? Why do we go door to door? Or why do we feed the EC Glass football team every home, or home game and away game? Why do we pack thousands of Operation Christmas Child boxes every year? Why do we send military care packages to our military personnel? Which, by the way, over here on my right, there's a few boxes left. They've already sent out, I believe, 10 boxes to our military personnel just to love them. Over here, if you were to stop by, there's an open box to see what was put in all the boxes. But there are also three boxes that have names but no addresses. That we have uh, lost contact at some point and we're not sure how to get a hold of them. 
So if you walk by there, if you happen to know who those individuals are, please let Benita or one of the ladies with the uh, Women's Missionary Union know so we can get those boxes to those individuals. But why do we do that? Why do we host T.C. Miller Elementary School when they shut down for three weeks last year? Why do we connect with the FCA at Dunbar Middle School and E.C. Glass High School? Why would we connect with Liberty University and send a bus over there or go over to University of Lynchburg and try to connect with their staff and their students? Why do we give a significant portion of our budget, last year almost $80,000, to local and international missions organizations? Why? And why in the world would we even consider hosting a school readiness program for for preschool, three, four, and five-year-olds in our building this next year? Why would we consider doing that? Because people are lost and need the gospel. Why do we do what we do? We'd love people in order to get close proximity with them that we may share and show the love of Christ and, and, and pray that they might be saved. Why do you do what you do? Is that the heartbeat? Is that the drive that you have? There are times, like Paul, when you get serious about the Great Commission, it's going to cost you time, it's going to cost you resources. It may even feel a little risky at times to go into uncharted territories. And I say it's not time to retreat. In our day, it, I think the gospel's needed even more so. It's not time for the church to be passive. Our world is hurting and feels hopeless. The government is not the solution. It's time for the church and our church to get engaged in praying and pursuing those who need Christ. When it comes to praying for the effectiveness of evangelism, we must do two things. First, ask God to break our hearts for those who do not yet believe. Do you pray that often? God, break my heart for those who are lost. And the second thing we have to do is recognize the indispensable role of the Holy Spirit. We need his help. In John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's the Holy Spirit who's the one that regenerates spiritually dead people, causing them to come to Christ. And Paul said in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see the, the Holy Spirit's role in salvation. We pray, we, we share the gospel, but the Holy Spirit does a, a marvelous work to transform hearts and minds. We are only Like the waiter who brings out the meal that the cook has made. God the Father has prepared the meal. We just present it to people. You don't have to convince them. You just have to serve them. And the Holy Spirit does his work to convince them to eat it. That it's worthy of partaking. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 3 it says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. There is no... Regeneration without the Holy Spirit entering 
a heart and transforming it. And since the Holy Spirit is essential to gospel effectiveness, we must learn how to pray in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. Jesus explains this role of the Holy Spirit in evangelism in John 16. Let me read the the larger portion of the passage, and then I'm going to focus in on verse 8, 9, 10, and 11. In chapter 16, um, starting down at verse... Four, but I said, uh, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him, the Father who sent me, and none of you asked me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to understand why Jesus went back and said he's sending us a helper. I pray that you would give within us a heart for lost people, But even greater, give us a heart for your gospel because it is the hope that we live by. And how could we contain it to ourselves? We ought to be praying far bolder prayers so that the lost, the wandering, the hopeless will be found and be declared righteous because your spirit has taken the words that we've said to individuals around the world that they may be saved for eternity. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's look at this brief passage where where Jesus explains the role of the Holy Spirit. Why did he come? And you notice the Holy Spirit only speaks that which he hears. The very phrase that Jesus said of himself, I only do what I hear the Father telling me to do. There is a unity among the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're so united, they're only going to do what The Father desires accomplished. And Jesus says, the Spirit is coming to accomplish the evangelism of the world. Will everybody be saved? No. But no one will be saved without the Holy Spirit's work in their own heart. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would come to convict the world. To convict the world means to to convince, to prove, to, to bring a realization The role of the Holy Spirit is to convince unbelievers of the truth of God that he speaks. 
But the Holy Spirit was sent to bring light to the darkness of people's minds and hearts and bring a biblical conviction in three areas, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Perhaps those three words didn't come to mind when you were praying for your lost friend or a relative. But this is exactly where he focuses. Knowing the Holy Spirit's work in these three areas ought to give us some guidance on how to pray for unbelievers. When we pray, we must ask the Holy Spirit to convince lost people that they are separated from God because of their sin. And the awareness of their current condition will reveal their need for forgiveness in Christ. No one can be saved without first understanding their sinful condition, period. That's why we're asking God help save them. Have you ever said to an unbeliever, somebody maybe in your family or friends, they say, are you saved? And they look at you going, from what? We say words sometimes that don't make sense to individuals. And, and salvation is only understood when you understand the, the experience you're having that needs salvation. This is why it's so essential, not just say Jesus loves you, but help them understand their lost condition and that they're drowning in sin apart from Christ's salvation. Now, most people don't see that. But there are various ways to, to show and explain and, uh, and reveal their lost condition. I pray for unbelievers to come to the conclusion that Isaiah did when he cried out in Isaiah chapter 6, Woe to me, for I am lost and I'm a man of unclean lips. That that recognition that, that yes, I, I need a Savior. Jesus says the Holy Spirit can uh, produce conviction Because they do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit comes to people who do not believe in Christ. They don't own it. They don't embrace it. Therefore, they need help from the inside to to open their eyes and to, to receive in their heart. The beauty of the heart of the gospel is the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That's a big phrase. We understand what a substitute is. You ever gone to school? And you thought you were going to have a math test that day, and you walk in, and your math teacher was sick that day, so they gave you a substitute, and they said, well, therefore, the test will come later. Let's watch a video. Whatever that is. It's a simple explanation of a substitute, but imagine you know your lost condition. You know that, that you are condemned. You've been found guilty of some crime, and you're walking towards the, 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 the gates of the prison, And someone steps in and says, they're guilty, they deserve the punishment, but I'm willing to take their punishment upon themselves. Can I be the substitute? Let them go free, and I will take it all for them. If that was true in your life, and you saw someone step into your punishment and let you go free, you wouldn't feel the same about that person anymore. Even if they were a stranger, you'd go, who is that man? Who is that person who'd be willing to take my punishment? The substitutionary atonement is this. We are atoned, we are covered, we are forgiven only if someone takes our place of our guilt. And substitutionary atonement actually has two substitutes. Sinful 
holy. I will take your sin upon myself. I will give you my holiness on you so that you can be with God. There is no entrance into heaven without holiness. Where are you going to get holiness? Only by Christ giving that to you and taking away your sinfulness. The penalty has been paid. And so I want you to see here what he tells us. The heart of the gospel is the substitutionary atonement. To believe in Jesus for salvation means we trust him as our substitute. We must pray for unbelievers to go beyond seeing Jesus as a nice religious leader and and a savior uh, maybe of the world, but seeing Jesus as a savior for me and my own sins. If I do not see sin for what it really is, a grave offense against a holy God, a loving holy creator, how can... Anyone direct their faith towards the only acceptable Savior, the crucified, risen Christ. Why is it we celebrate Easter? Because there Christ conquered death by paying for our sins. Let me encourage you. Go to a Good Friday service this year, either here or somewhere, if you're back somewhere else with family. Because I don't think we really contemplate the death that Christ suffered enough. What he went through for us. The nine inch nails that drove through his flesh. An innocent man. So that the guilty could become innocent. We must pray for believers. That they begin to see their sin. But they begin to see the savior. That the spirit comes to convict them of their sin. And when unbelievers understand that everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. They begin to confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Christ is Lord. So perhaps you pray like this. I ask you to have uh, an individual name in mind, maybe a couple of them. I want you to insert it in this prayer. Holy Spirit, I ask that you convict this individual of the guilt of their sin so that he or she may repent of unbelief and then trust the Lord Jesus Christ as their substitute on the cross and receive him as their savior. That's a significant prayer. When you pray for people to be saved, do you spend time trusting and praying that the Holy Spirit would convict this person of their sin? The second thing he tells us, we pray for the Holy Spirit to convict a person of God's righteousness. To pray for an unbeliever to become aware of God's righteousness is to pray that they understand the reason for the cross. In verse 10, he says, Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father um, is proof that he finished the work he came to do that is complete. It is finished. I conquered death. I rose from the grave. I paid the penalty. All men and women who will trust in my act, what I have accomplished may have righteousness in order to enter heaven. He willingly came to earth and welcomed the sin to be imputed, transferred to himself so that he might impute, transfer his holiness to us, his righteousness on the basis of faith alone. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One of the things the Holy Spirit does is convicts us of righteousness. There was a book out many, many years ago, decades ago, basically telling us that we're all okay. It was at the same time that a book came out, or no, actually, I think it was Time Magazine, who said God is dead. Yeah, if you kill off God, I guess everybody's okay the way they are. The reality is the Holy Spirit's already said to us, we are sinful, separated from a holy God, and therefore we need him to save us. That's number one. Second one, why? Because we're not righteous, and how are we going to get our righteous? Every religion on the planet except for Christianity says you can earn your way to God's favor. Whoever that God is or multiple gods that people have, I'm just going to be good enough for the rain God or the sun God. I'll do these chants. I'll surrender my life. I'll, be, I'll go on mission you know, at 18 years old for a couple of years in order to get God favor and I might get a higher rank in heaven. I'll do all these things and maybe I'll make the team. And Christ says, if that was possible, I would not have come and taken on flesh. There would be no reason for God to come work for us if we could do the work ourselves. I hope you understand that the more you work on your own strength and your own plan, the more you wear yourself out and you get no results for eternity. The greatest gift God gives us is grace. You know what grace is? Unmerited favor. The greatest news that we have, this is what we call it the gospel. The gospel means good news. What's good news if you have to work for it? The good news is that God has done the work for you. It doesn't seem right because in our, especially in our American culture, we work, we, we pull ourselves from our own bootstraps and we do it and prove ourselves and that's a laughing stock to God saying, you know, jump across the Grand Canyon and you might get my attention. Some of you can't even walk from the car to here without tripping and falling on something. Listen to me, God's gospel, the grace of God is that you are unrighteous, you are sinful, you are separated but Christ comes in and says, I'll do it for you. Just trust and believe in me, and I will give you righteousness, and I'll give you the Holy Spirit so that he begins to sanctify you, cleanse you, and create a path for you to begin to express out righteousness that was not your own, but it's all given to you by grace. Oh, we ought to celebrate the greatness of God. Even today, as you get up, new mercies were given to you. Even as a believer, new mercies are given to you because you still blow it and you're still battling between a sinful nature and a holy nature that you've been given. But you know what? The more you depend upon God, the more you depend upon the Holy Spirit, the more you say, yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your way, the more we understand prayer is the foundation of all things in our life, the more you'll begin to praise God for the righteousness you know you didn't earn. And when we have that kind of position, when we speak to people who do not yet understand, when we pray the Holy Spirit convicts them of their heart and they know where we've come from and what God's doing in us now, when, when they see, wow, they used to be very angry or they used to be very arrogant or they used to you know, just be uh, uh, so isolated to themselves, but now God's pulling them out of their shell and they're telling people about the love of God. When they see a transformation in you, the Holy Spirit uses that to convict them of their own sin and their own lack of righteousness and says, I want what you have. You know, 
Apostle Paul, he said, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Only then could he then proclaim Philippians 3, 9, and I'd be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Have you ever prayed the prayer of righteousness from the Holy Spirit for other people? Use that same name or those names again as I lead you in this prayer. Holy Spirit, would you unleash your power on this person so that he or she will become aware of their spiritual bankruptcy and desperate need of the righteousness of Christ, which can only be received by faith. The third and last role of the Holy Spirit in this conviction verse is of judgment, where we pray for the Holy Spirit to convict a person of God's judgment. I want to be very clear here. You are not the judge. We spend a lot of time on our planet uh, judging other people. And there is a righteous judgment. When we see something out of order, perhaps you've got to call that into play, but you realize you are not the judge. For all of us, we're sinful and separated from a holy God. None of us are on this pedestal as if we're unaffected. But there is one who makes the rules and one who, who will hold to a standard. And so Jesus finally said in verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged, there's no one who's going to bypass the, the righteous judgment of God. So therefore, to pray for an awareness of judgment is to pray for an unbeliever to see the urgency of his or her need to repent. God does not take our sins and sweep them under the rug because he thinks we're batting at least 500. The Bible is clear. It's just as it, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Knowledge of judgment is intended to compel sinners to cry out to God for forgiveness. Christ, at the cross, defeated the power and plan of the devil, he crushed him. The whole plan was wiped out. The devil thought he had won. In reality, he had lost, and he will have a future and final judgment sent to hell. Hell was prepared for Satan and the lost demons, not for humans. But those who do not Receive the grace of Christ and say, not God's will, but my will. The very thing Satan was saying, I want my own, I can be as equal to God. All those who reject Christ and those who, who, who basically live for themselves as Satan did will join him in the eternal hell. I know that's not popular teaching in our culture, but I do not have the liberty to change God's words. Neither do I ever want to fight against the Holy Spirit who says, I'm coming to convict you of your sin, of righteousness, and the judgment that's to come. If you knew a relative, a, a friend, a co-worker was going to stand before God on their own account and face the judgment of God, would you want to help them? On the day of judgment, there's only one 
defense attorney that will win your case. Christ alone, who says that penalty was paid and I did it on their behalf. And they've received me and come under my counsel. Therefore, they're protected and ushered in to the kingdom. An awareness of the judgment of, of God is a divine gift that leads sinners to conversion. So perhaps you would pray this prayer. Perhaps you've never prayed a prayer like this, but this is exactly what the Word of God says. Perhaps you will pray, Holy Spirit, please convince this person in my mind that apart from the repentant faith in Christ, his or her sin of unbelief will lead to the condemnation on judgment day. So I pray, my heart breaks, but I pray, compel them to flee to Christ for safety and salvation. Listen, no one can be saved apart from the Holy Spirit's convicting work. And we ought to be praying far more in alignment with the Holy Spirit that he would do his work. Our call is to love people. Our, our call is to serve them. To, to serve them in a way that shows and shares the good news of Christ. God is a judge. You and I are not. But we ought to be on our knees praying that the Holy Spirit does his work while we do the work that God has shown us to do. Let us love them, serve them, uh, uh, share with them, and let the Holy Spirit do his work to convert them. In addition to, to prayer, and I pray that we'd be more engaged in prayer, we'd be more active with care, I'd be, that we'd be willing to share the gospel. But in addition to prayer, we must be willing to love people and expose people to the word of Christ. If we give a cup of cold water, do it in Jesus' name. Tell them why you do it. You know, as we pray, and we focused on that this year, and uh, we're going to jump back into our Dream Bigger series through Ephesians. I'll be picking up Ephesians chapter 4 next week, working verse by verse. And if, if Ephesians chapter 3, verse, verse 19 and 20, 21 tells us that we ought to trust in the Lord in such a way that, that he can accomplish and do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, if we're to dream bigger and trust God more, last night I was just praying. I said, God, what would you have us do in a bold way? If we're going to pray for lost people, not just talk about it, but actually pray and then share, what would God do? I said, Lord, would you give us 30 people this year? There's more than 30 people in this room. There's probably almost 300 people in this room. What if we all got desperate to pray for lost people and share the gospel with them? I'd love to see our baptistry filled every week. Anybody with me? Actually, we have a baptism already scheduled. I met with a young lady this past week. So on the 11th, we have baptism scheduled. But listen to me. It's not just about baptism. It's not about just, you know, sharing the gospel. I know that the Holy Spirit can convict hearts when the church gets passionate about praying and sharing the gospel. People are going to hell apart from the saving grace of Christ. Do you believe that? And so, Father, give us 30 by your Holy Spirit, would you convict 30 people that we personally pray for and interact with and, and are desperate to see come to faith? And you will get the glory. 
and we will celebrate your name for eternity with all 30 of those individuals. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.